Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Yeah. Okay. Welcome. My name is Mark Halberg, and I'm Dean for Research and Faculty here at the Hergy School. Uh, we are here today to talk about the American midterm elections, which took place yesterday. Some countries have elections every four years, every five years. It so happens that the U.S. has elections at the national level every two years. Importantly, every two years, the entire House of Representatives, all 435 members, are up for re-election, or at least if they retire, the districts are up. Approximately one-third of the U.S. Senate is up for election. And given that this is the midterm elections and not a presidential year, the president was not directly on the ballot. But there's a sense, of course, that President Trump in other ways was here. And in fact, that might be one of the themes. To what extent is this a vote for or against the president? versus different, more localized issues that sometimes emerge in these type of elections. Well, I don't want to have you distracted, but we do have up here the current results, because indeed one other thing about the U.S. is the counting continues and they're updated virtually. Uh, the, the big picture is pretty much set. The House will be controlled by the Democratic Party. The Senate will be controlled by the Republicans but the exact margins are still to be determined within a rather narrow band. Well, I am delighted to see a very interesting group here that we will have. I, we're going to start with an opening statement by Nelson Cunningham. I have, afterwards, we will then move to a general panel discussion that Anna Sauerbrei will moderate. One person I would like to highlight in particular on that panel, although I don't want to introduce everybody, is Peter Bayer, who's a member of the German Bundestag and coordinator of transatlantic cooperation for the Federal Foreign Office. We're delighted to have you here at the Hedy School. Um, Bayer. And I'd also like to introduce our first speaker, which is Nelson Cunningham. He's president and co-founder of McClarty Associates, and that was prior to co-founding McClarty Associates. He was in the White House a special advisor to President Clinton on Western Hemispheric Affairs, and he also served as general counsel at the White House Office of Administration. One of the things I learned in our conversation, though, is that he has ties to several Democrats, not just to the, the Clinton White House. This includes work for John Kerry, who was most recently Secretary of State in the Obama administration. But if we go further back, he served as special counsel for then-Senator Joe Biden on the Judiciary Committee. Joe Biden, of course, was later vice president. And uh, we will see what maybe future roles both of these individuals have. Um, but without further ado, Mr. Cunningham, I'd like to invite you up. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. Thank you to the Herty School. Uh, this is my first visit here to this fabulous facility. When I first came to Berlin in 1990, just after the wall had come down and when so much was changing, I stayed in a hotel about two blocks from here. And remember this neighborhood as being one where the buildings had a very distinguished past, 
but maybe not a very distinguished present. Uh, and when I look now at this neighborhood, I see that it's just absolutely remarkable, the transformation that has swept over this neighborhood and beyond, and how fortunate for the Herty School to be here in the heart of the, the New Berlin and of, and of everything so close to the government. Thank you to, uh, to a parliamentarian, a member of the Bundestag, Peter Baia, for helping to arrange today and for lifting uh, this entire session and for helping ensure that we have a full room uh, today. We appreciate that. Um, there's obviously no doubt about my political leanings. Uh, they're, they're right out there in my history. But uh, I do try to be clear-eyed about these things, especially when I'm abroad, because I think that you here deserve uh, a more objective view. And if you want to get uh, yourselves all emotionally riled up, you can. there are various American cable channels that I can recommend to you <laughs> that you can become obsessed with and, and follow all too closely. Um, the clear-eyed view. Uh, for the last year and a half, Democrats have seen a blue wave coming. It's speaking to my Democratic colleagues, friends in the House of Representatives, the Senate, the, those who are in charge of recruiting candidates, those who are in charge of raising money, those who are in charge of mobilizing candidates. For the last 18 months, there has been this enormous blue wave coming. And all the Democrats saw it and were excited. The number of women, the number of, of diverse candidates, the number of veterans, the number of really an attempt to broaden the party and to take advantage of this. Um, unfortunately, they are not the only ones who saw the blue wave coming. Uh, President Trump saw this coming and decided he would erect, as best he could, a red wall. And we see yesterday now what the results of that giant blue wave meeting that giant red wall were. Uh, total spending in this election, $5.2 billion U.S. on both sides. Unprecedented amounts of money on both sides. Uh, we're still seeing the votes being counted, but unprecedented number of votes on both sides cast yesterday. Uh, in our system, of course, voting is voluntary. It's not mandatory. Uh, Off-year elections uh, are a fraction of the number of people who vote in a presidential year. This year, the numbers are, we may see, they may, yet, they may be historic for an off-year, meaning those who are enthused by a blue wave were enthused by that blue wave. Those who were enthused at the idea of a red wall were enthused, and they came out yesterday. How would I characterize the result? Uh, clearly, it's a win for the Democrats to take the House. But look how narrowly. If we look here at the screen, you take 218 for a majority. At the moment, the Democrats have only bested that by four. There are a number of undeclared seats. I predict will be somewhere between 8 to, eight to 15 Democratic majority. But this will be the smallest uh, majority held by any party in the House, maybe even ever. This might be a historically tiny minority. We do not have in the U.S. the same uh, discipline that you all have of party voting. We're not a parliamentary system. These members are not part of a slate. They grew up in their neighborhoods. They grew up in their districts. They come from their districts. They answer to no one, ultimately. And so 222 230, 235, 
uh, perilously narrow majority for the Democrats. But a huge impact because not only has Donald Trump lost the ability to initiate legislation, in our system, legislation tends to begin in the House, move to the Senate. Uh, the House has draconian rules for voting, meaning it's easier to muster a majority when you have the numbers. Uh, little, little opportunity to block it. It's in the Senate where you get the debate, the discussion, the slowdowns. What Donald Trump has just lost, and this is what Barack Obama lost eight years ago, this is what Bill Clinton lost in 1994, he's lost the ability to pass legislation his way. He's lost the ability to get it through the House, force it through the Senate, and get it out, because Nancy Pelosi will not be inclined to cooperate with him on his legislative program, maybe. I'll come back to this in the end of my remarks. The Senate has gone curiously the other way. We seem to have, he seems to have picked up more red seats and a number of Democratic incumbents have lost. Why? It's a matter of geography. Only one third of the Senate is up. The states that happened to be up were bright red states, many of whom were Trump had won handily. It was bad territory for Democrats. So the, bright, the big blue wave met the red wall. I think Donald Trump deserves credit for building that red wall. Uh, in 1994, Bill Clinton, I can tell you, I was working in the Senate then for Senator Biden. None of us saw this wave coming, the, the red wave, the Gingrich wave, the revolution of 94. And within a matter of weeks before the election, we were stunned to see the polls changing and stunned to discover that indeed the House and the Senate could switch on the same night and switch against us. Uh, Barack Obama had more notice that this was coming. And I, I can't imagine why it, eight years ago, he was not doing what Donald Trump did now. Barack Obama was, he had had a consequential first two years, but he was staring out the window thinking about his place in history rather than going out, flying around the country, giving Democrats something to vote for. Donald Trump, and as a consequence, he lost the House. He lost the Senate four years later. And his legislative agenda died that night. Donald Trump understood that he would lose his legislative agenda, so he went out and he made this election about himself, about the issues that he trumpets, and about getting his voters to the polls. And darn if it didn't work. He got his voters out there uh, by highlighting issues like Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court Justice, the caravan, these a few thousand Honduran uh, migrants limping up through southern Mexico became a marauding, invading army. The point you have to understand about Donald Trump is that he has an extraordinarily transactional relationship with his voters, his base. He knows he is not a traditional Republican. He cannot count on traditional Republican loyalty, blind support. So he looks to each of his constituents groups and he says, I have something for you. For social conservatives, evangelicals, religious conservatives, who don't look at Donald Trump and say, well, you've been married three times, you have quite a recreational life, you're not exactly the man that we would support. He says, yeah, but I'm gonna give you 
conservative judges and conservative justices, and I know that's what you want. CEOs look at Donald Trump and say, wow, this trade war makes us very uncomfortable. These tariffs, the, the damage you're doing to our allies, our supply chains. He says, I know what you want. You want tax cuts, don't you? And so he gave them tax cuts. He gave them a tax cut package that was aimed at precisely their pocketbooks, both because they are generally wealthy people that help their personal taxes. He also put billions and billions of dollars into their corporate coffers by reducing corporate taxes. He brought billions of dollars home, and he gave them, there's so far been one trillion US dollars spent by companies as a result of the tax cuts. Not on jobs, not on salary increases, not on R&D, but buying back their stock, one trillion dollars. Why do they do that? It keeps their stock price up, keeps their shareholders happy, keeps them happy. So Donald Trump says, okay, CEOs, I gave you what you wanted, right? One after the other, he does this. His white working class voters, uh, who remember were Democrats until two years ago, this has been the heart of the Democratic constituency. The deal he makes with them is part economic and it's part cultural. On the economic side, he said, look, a lot of you, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, the heartland that, by the way, won him the election, you workers, want those factory jobs. So here's what, remember NAFTA? Worst deal ever? I just fixed NAFTA. And indeed, what he focused on on NAFTA were bringing home auto jobs, auto parts jobs, very, very focused. And now he tells him, see, I got a win for you. Culturally, this is where the caravan comes in. I, I, there's no invasion coming from Honduras or Guatemala heading toward the US. But he used it relentlessly to get his voters excited, enthused, fearful, and voting. And it worked. So Trump has this transactional sense with his voters. He knows how to reach out to them, and he knows how to win their loyalty. And that's how he assembled, over the last two months, the results of yesterday, this, this big red wall. Let me spend just a minute talking about what I think might come next and then we'll get to our, our, excellent, uh, our excellent panel. Uh, Donald Trump is not a man who is given to going around giving hugs. Uh, you know, we in English we say, well, let's sing kumbaya and hold hands. Uh, he is not a kumbaya sort of president, but he is a transactional president. Uh, he will look at Nancy Pelosi and he says, well, actually one good thing about losing the house is now I have a concrete enemy I can run against in 2020, I now, I now put a face on my opposition. But he's also shrewd enough to know that if he can show the American people that he can deliver on some things, even with a Democratic House, that's a powerful weapon for him in his reelection. Uh, eight years ago, the Republicans decided, it being in opposition, never to make any deal with Barack Obama. And the minute he lost the House, uh, he lost the capacity to do strike any kind of a compromise. They just said no. I think that Trump might go to the Pelosi and the Democrats and say, let me make you an offer you can't refuse. Remember infrastructure? He ran on infrastructure two years ago as this was part of his outreach to both the business community and to the working community. Let's build bridges, roads, airports, rail, He's done nothing on that in the, first, in the last two years. 
But imagine he sits down with Nancy Pelosi in the weeks or months to come, and he says, Madam Speaker, you and I both agree our infrastructure is crumbling. We agree we need many more workers to be put back to work. <clears throat> Tell you what, Madam Pelosi, you pick the bridges. You pick the airports. You pick the ports. You tell me the highways. You tell me the states where you want the money to be spent, and I'll sign it. That would be, ca I mean, it's hard for her to, to say no to a deal like that, right? What if he comes to her and he says, you know, tax cuts. I know you complained that my tax cuts in the first two years were focused too much on the wealthy and on corporations. Well, let's sit down and let's talk about tax cuts. You tell me what a middle-class tax cut would look like, Madam Pelosi. For middle class, for working class, you tell me. And let me see if I can't sign that. And because Republicans love tax cuts, they will support a tax cut, even if it doesn't support their constituents. And if Trump says, this is good for us, they'll support him. So on those two things, powerful infrastructure and taxes, he might actually be able to win over Nancy Pelosi on two important goals for the American people. There's, a, there's a, a third one, a half a one, and this is the one that affects you and Europe most of all, which is trade. Uh, Trump is obviously not a classic Republican on trade issues. He's a protectionist. He builds barriers. He believes in tariffs. Um, he's gotten a lot of criticism from his CEO base for that. Uh, he might sit down with Pelosi and say, you and I agree on this, don't we? We want to have more auto factories in the U.S. We want more auto workers to be busy. We want more industrial jobs in the heartland. So join with me, Nancy, in making sure that all of these foreigners stop taking advantage of us. They stop sending us their cars unfairly. They stop sending us their industrial equipment unfairly. Support me in redoing these trade agreements. Support me in, in refashioning our trade alliances around the world in a way that puts American workers first. And you know what? He might just have uh, a willing partner in at least some of the House Democrats who will say, you know what, that direction doesn't trouble us deeply. Um, foreign policy will clearly be an area. It's an area where the American president can roam with little control from a Congress, whether uh, a House or Senate, uh, expect his attempt to deeply refashion American foreign affairs around the world and American economic foreign affairs around the world to continue. I promise you, as I conclude my remarks here, um, his conversations with Brussels, his fixation on German industry, on German autos, will not stop. He will not be, uh, he will not stop focusing on this issue. Indeed, this might become, in the next few months, one of the highlights of his uh, second semester agenda for the first term of his presidency. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. Thank you uh, to all of our guests, and I look forward to a really illuminating debate. Thank you. A warm welcome from my side, too. Um, I've been introduced. My name is Anna Sauerbrei. I'm the deputy editor-in-chief of the Tagesspiegel here in Berlin. And I'm very much looking forward to, this, to the discussion. Um, 
I hope we are all awake because I think some of us have spent the night in front of the television or have got up very early this morning to see the results. Um, I will just quickly introduce um, the two women on this panel, on this marvelously balanced panel, I must say. Congratulations, Hertie School, um, which uh, you are not familiar yet with, uh, which are Suda uh, Wilp. She's a senior transatlantic fellow and the deputy director of uh, the office, the Berlin office of the German Marshall Fund. And uh, she has also been working with Congress for over a decade and oversees the Congress Bundestag Forum at uh, GMF. So she's an insider and will hopefully tell us what happens to Congress now. And we have Andrea Römmele. She's uh, Dean of Executive Dean of Executive Education and a Professor of Communication in Pol Politics and Civil Society here at the Hattie School. And her research interests are comparative political communications, political par parties and public affairs. I think we can talk about Donald Trump's communication strategy this early this morning, later on during the discussion. Um, I'd like to start with a very simple question um, and do first quick round. Uh, so who won? Mark, would you like to start since you're... Okay. Um, I, I'll follow up on, on Nelson's excellent comments in terms of how this all looks. I'd have two comments. One is just never forget that the Democrats did take the House. There will be a check now, and that has not been the case the past two years. So that's very important in terms of how this runs. I would add one thing, though, in terms of perhaps how Donald Trump won in ways that may be underappreciated. Uh, of the Republicans that did lose in the House, many of them were moderates. Many of them did vote to maintain uh, Obamacare uh, previously. And I think there's a greater consolidation of those that remain, also the ones that uh, came into the Senate. Uh, indeed, because Trump was, was so adamant in, in his campaign style and things like this, he's at least taking credit for some of those. I'm thinking in Florida in particular, but also in Missouri and some other sorts of places. And so I think you'll see a Republican Party that will be a bit more disciplined than before. And in this way, you could also say that Donald Trump won. Suda, who won? Um, I, I think I'm going to say that the women and diversity won in this election. Um, over 200 women were on the ballots this year, and I think the Democrats especially have had a record number of women and people of color running. I also think that uh, political engagement won. Um, you know, after years of disinterest, uh, this midterm showed that, in fact, millennials and um, people from all segments of society came out to vote. I think it was like a two-decade high. So I would say those are the two forces that won. But I will end on saying that um, I think Donald Trump could characterize this as a win as well. As Nelson so well said, it's only a narrow majority. That What it looks like, it wasn't a wave election. And um, his relentless campaigning over the past week or two really tightened the races at the end and um, let the um, Republicans um, retain control of the Senate, in fact, picking up a few seats. So do you think he was right in saying uh, we succeeded? Um, I guess he was very strategic in saying, well, I'll let the House go. Um, I'll concentrate all my efforts on the Senate. And he also went to those um, um, states where he knew he had a chance, whereas people like Dean Heller in Nevada, I think he was there early on, but toward the end they said, don't come back. And he didn't go back, but Dean Heller managed to lose anyway. So um, they were really – he looked very carefully at which states he should campaign in. And Florida was, is also a big win for him. So you can say this was a win for the Republicans. Peter Bayer, who yeah. won? 
it, well, the, the tweet was by the pre president himself, a tremendous success, a success tonight. What, you know, strike tremendous, uh, remain success, which is true. He was exaggerating. If you look to the figures also on the on the board there, I mean, if you look to the to the through the power as it has shifted on in the House side, the Democrats have won, not with a blue wave as expected by by by, by many. Um, but you know, I think it was in the year 1986 when we had a situation like this, this the last time that there was a Republican president in the Oval Office and a Republican majority in the Senate and a Democratic uh, majority in the House. So we have this split, um, split uh, government, so to speak, and we have a shift in the, bal in the, in the balance of political power. And uh, it's easy to, to see from the results that uh, who, who has won. It was a Democratic Party, but not as much as, be, as, as expected. And with regard to voter enthusiasm, motivation and mobilization, I mean, you described very, uh, very vividly, uh, Nelson, um, what Donald Trump, what his recipe was, uh, uh, the, the path he pursued, how he did this win, how he mobilizes voters, and obviously he did a better job in that uh, than the Democratic side. Andrea, what's your take? Yeah, uh, thanks, Anna. I can only second what, um, what has been said uh, so far. Uh, and, I mean, just adding to that, there are really two important states. Trump won, which is uh, Ohio and Florida. And those are states that are really crucial for the 2020 election. And I think what we've, what we've also seen... Uh, and, and Nelson, you, you um, alluded to that, this sort of red wall um, Trump was able to really build within the last two or three months. And that gives us just an idea of the 2020 election and uh, just, quote unquote, what a good campaigner uh, Trump is. This gives me a good chance to sort of put a period on my remarks. Look, the Democrats won last night. I mean, they won the House of Representatives, and that is a huge victory for Democrats and a huge blow for Donald Trump. He will dress it up as he can, but it's a huge win for the Democrats and will completely alter the shape of the next two years. Uh, it gave him a near win. He ran a, a remarkable effort that was, uh, as we've not seen in past years, but the Democrats won. Here's what really lost uh, is any sense of symbol, civil comedy polarization really won. Uh, the Democrats won by running against Donald Trump. Donald Trump ran by, ru by running against them. Hateful, ugly language on both sides. And I think the next two years, we're going to see an even greater polarization in my country. And that's going to be fundamentally corrosive, I fear, uh, to our democracy. However, he did lose, for example, Republicans in the suburbs or in the middle of the country. So my feeling this morning was, hey, isn't this a good thing? He's losing the moderates. The Trump alliance between the hardcore Trumpists and the moderate Republicans is not working anymore. So this doesn't give you any hope. You think the polarization is going to increase even? Here's, here's the issue. Um, in two years, those districts which Democrats won narrowly They're going to be back out there again. They'll be back on the ballot, and this time his name will be at the top. I fear that those seats, which were, they're designed to be Republican seats, remember, by gerrymandering. They, we barely flipped them Democratic. I fear in two years they can flip right back. 
having said that, the Senate's going to be a better playground for Democrats in two years. Yes. So we'll have a, a much better a, a effort there. But the House is going to remain a matter of inches for a long time, I think. And also with regard to the quality of the composition on the, on the House side now, even though, as it seems now, the uh, Democratic Party has won there uh, and has won the majorities, the composition that you, you, you see that there's a lot of, of the candidates on the Republican side who uh, were running for the first time. So a lot of resigned didn't even start uh, running again for yet another term, but uh, you know left it for new candidates. So so we see a change in the generation, and a lot of those who were in the Repo in the Republican Party in the House side, uh, Trump critics, are not there anymore. And those who got elected, many of them, are more or less Trumpists. So he has, even though they have lost the majority on, this, on the House side, they have a solid ground and a fundament, their basis, uh, with regard to support of Trumpist uh, politics. So let's step back and ask what this election was really about. I mean, many of you have discussed it as a Trump election or a referendum on Trump, and he himself painted it that way. Um, I was in Iowa in September, and my impression was um, that regionally, these very much local issues drove this the, the campaigns there. There's, uh, there was a a privatization of Medicaid in the States uh, done by Kim Reynolds, who's the governor there. And this was really what people were excited about and what they were worried about. But so is he right in saying this was a, I'm on the ballot, this was a referendum on me? Let's do a quick round. Uh, it depends where. I mean, that's unfortunately uh, maybe a, a very evasive answer. But, I mean, you, you ask about certain issues. I mean, you, no one's mentioned health care yet. Health care clearly mattered. So-called pre-existing conditions and are they covered was something that the Democrats hammered the Republicans on. We also shouldn't forget, I mean, it, the Republicans won the House by about one percentage point in 2016. There has been a swing. It's about a seven percentage point change. That's a, that's a significant number, I think, in terms of how this runs. And another thing we haven't talked about at all is the economy. And the economy is booming right now. I mean, the question I have is, yes, there may be this setup. I agree with you, Nelson, in two years that some of these may fall back, but that's all else equal. And a question I have is with very large budget deficits, another thing we didn't mention, and perhaps both sides talking about making those even bigger in terms of how things run, that's going to be yet another issue. So I, I do think things may, may move a bit, but I would emphasize in the current one, at least one of the reasons for democratic success, it was partly Trump, and especially in the suburbs, and especially among women. I think that was something that was there. But there was this concrete health care issue as well. Yeah, I guess you could sort of split it up between the Senate and the House. I think um, in the Senate, surely Trump was um, the object of, um, you know, when people went to the polling booth, what they were thinking about. But I think the House, you could say local issues do matter. And I do think that some of those districts that you mentioned, Nelson, where um, they are still some sw swing districts, um, a lot of the candidates didn't mention Trump too much. They they won, but they also talk, talk about local issues, and they were trying to be moderate and bipartisan in their approach. Um, but more importantly, I think this election is also about what direction does the country want to go in? You know, um, is protectionism now going to be uh, something that both Democrats and Republicans agree on? Um, 
nativism, what kind of, a, what does America mean f for people? Is birthright citizenship really something that is going to be debated? So these are things that, um, yes, Donald Trump, his style, the political culture, but also the foundations of our democracy. That's what Obama said, we are on the ballot. It's, this is about us. Do you, do you think that too? Are you with Obama or Trump? Was it about... I think, well, obviously, um, again, what I, what, what I was trying to uh, mention earlier, obviously the president was, for his clientele, was, was, was the largest, the, big, the biggest uh, motivator. But then again, also, so both sides are right. Trump is a great, was, a, was a big motivating factor for his uh, constituencies, as well as if you look to the respective districts, there were some with regard to the candidates, uh, the, 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 the characters, the personalities were completely different. Some, you know, were not very strong uh, Trump supporters. And then also with regard to the topics, were sometimes very regionally driven campaigns there. But overarching was Donald Trump. And in a combination of this, I think this was uh, a factor that played a role that led to this result that we see out there on the board. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention, if you, if you, if you look to, 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 to topics, uh, Mark, you mentioned quite rightly uh, the economy. Everybody, more or less, throughout, throughout the nation in the United States of America is content with the current situation. They have a, they have a great uh, uh, increase in the, in the economy, 4.6% or something like that. Uh, and that has, it, 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 so everybody, although most of the people saw economy or see economy as extremely important, uh, you know, since they are content, it was, you know, they, they will not see a change for a decade now. You have seen the economy on the, on the rise. So it was, although it was so important to everybody, it did not really play a big role. And one last thing that I wanted to mention is with regard to money, you mentioned already the, the deficit spending before. Uh, now the House, with a demo, uh, democratic majority, uh, has the power of the purse. So one, th one of the big promises my guess just would be of Donald Trump to build this damn wall down to the south is probably not going to happen. Um, yeah, I, I, I would go with what Mark said. I, you know, was it really about uh, Trump or, or was it about uh, issues and other candidates uh, uh, and so on? It, of, of course, to some extent, it was about Trump. It was about the political, uh, you know, the change in political culture, the t change in style, and and observing the elections. You know, from a from a European perspective, it still is um, to some extent. You know, we still won, or you know. People like I still wonder how come that there still is so much support for this, you know, kind of communication style, this uh, hate and this aggression. So um, it is a mixture. Um, what I and I know we're supposed to talk about the 2018 uh, elections, but but observing the the uh, the candidates on the Democratic side, I am. Um, and I would like to get your insight uh, uh, on that. I was surprised and also a little bit worried that two years before the presidential election, we, or at least observers like I, don't see sort of the two or three candidates on the Democratic side who might be able to, you know, to enter the race. Well, let me answer your question, which is, it was Trump, Trump, Trump. And to the extent that issues played a role, they were stand-ins for Trump, uh, period. 
That's clear. I should maybe say at this point uh, that uh, we will um, talk a little further here on the panel, but this is not, as we say in German, Frontalunterricht, of course, but you're, um, can, uh, you can ask questions uh, and we will switch to the debate with you in a little bit and so prepare. Um, so let's look ahead maybe. What does this election mean for the Republican Party? Um, as uh, Neil said, uh, Trumpist candidates did win in many places, for example, in Florida. Um, so do other Republicans, will, will other Republicans feel encouraged to go on playing the Trump playbook uh, in two years? Let's start maybe with uh, Mark. Okay. <laughs> You're very kind. All right. Just in case anyone would say. But there's somebody else we have. Sorry. I'll be very quick. I mean, I, the, I mentioned this before. I mean, it's become his party. And one of the really interesting things is this district in South Carolina where Mark Sanford ran. He was this, a Trump critic. He lost in the primary to somebody who was much further to the right. And then uh, it was a surprise last night the Democrats picked up that seat. Now, that might be one of those that probably won't hold in two years. Probably depends on who's running and the like, but I would, my guess would be that's one of those that's going to come back. But what happened was, in some sense, it went too far to the right. But what the sort of never-Trumpers or the, the people who are dissidents in the Republican Party now, they're only on TV. I mean, they're not really in the party anymore. And so I think in terms of the party itself, it's really become his party and it's wrapped right around him. I would tend to agree. I think, um, so, you know, rhinos don't exist maybe in the Republican Party anymore, Republicans in name only. Um, the Rockefeller Republicans are probably officially extinct now. And um, 40 of them already sort of decided not to run again. And the lone people like Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, I don't know how much longer he'll be able to hold out too. So this party has definitely um, coalesced around the president. And it, it will be interesting to see what those never Trumpers, those moderate Republicans, where they go. I think that depends on the future of the Democratic Party as well. Will um, Democrats um, go with a, the progressive streak or will they try to tack to the middle in 2020? I think the jury's out on that and that will determine what the coalition will look like for the Democrats. Yeah, one, one, one phenomenon is, is uh, you know, the lack of leadership, as, as far as I observe on the, from this side of the big pond, uh, on the Democratic side. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is positioning herself now as speaker and everything, but will she really be the, the presidential candidate? I don't see her like that. I mean, I might be wrong. I, this is just, as I sit here, my, my evaluation today, after, after hours after the results of the elections. But there are one or two remarks I wanted to make. I mean, one thing that always more or less in the different dimensions um, happen every, every time, uh, the closer you get to any election date, even though you might not agree totally and you don't, don't really think, wow, he's a, he's a super guy as a candidate, he's the best candidate or not. You know, if you belong to his, his or her party, you gather around, you know, your candidate because you want to be strong, want to, want to support him because, you know, you're, you're sharing the same uh, party book. Um, and, you know, until, I don't know, two, three days, days ago, maybe last week, I thought this, this is going to be interesting to see how this is opening up again after November 6th. But, you know, with this picture now that the, the, the Democratic win on the House side and even a, uh, ex extending the, the majority and the, the, the power on the Senate side, as it seems now, I might, you know, I, I might, might, might agree that this is an area that Trump has made his, uh, the, the public in his own 
that it will probably stay like this. And also what I mentioned earlier, that on the House side, that there are more Trumpists uh, elected into the House. This could also be, uh, you know, change this, uh, my thoughts that I had heard earlier. One last remark that I wanted to make with regard to the constituencies, to the, to the, to the voters. Interestingly, Laughlin and Nelson Cunningham has alluded to this in his remarks at the beginning, that there, there's, there, you know, to, large, to a large extent, there has been something like a, a voter swap that, that the, 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 the working class white men, uh, you know, are more now voting for, the, for, for Donald Trump as Republican president uh, and vice versa. Um, uh, that, is, uh, that is an interesting phenomenon. So I, I think it's much, much early to see really, I mean, we're talking about and we, you have to make up your mind, you have to consider and everything, but it's much too early to really uh, be able to solidly say um, how this is going, going to play out. And also, I mean, we might want to talk about this later. What does this all, what we're discussing, mean for us on this side of the, of the Atlantic? Anything at all. So who will be the next Democratic candidate, now that the question came out, we can maybe put it to you. And what kind of strategy do you think it, will the Democrats extract from the results we've seen? Uh, let me first set the table a bit. Um, Donald, this is the party of Donald Trump now, Republicans, but it does not mean that every Republican feels comfortable being in that party. They're afraid of him. Uh, elected Republicans will not cross him in public. Those who do lose their jobs, as has been pointed out. Uh, they will toe the line publicly, but in their heart, do they feel that this is their Republican party? I hear from many of my Washington Republican friends uh, that they worry that their party is about to fracture. They worry that they view it as that there being three parties in Washington, the Democrats, the Trump Republicans, and then the never Trump Republicans. And they, they wonder what's gonna happen to their party. By the way, this is part of setting the table. No Democrat that I speak to says, oh my gosh, are we gonna have a party anymore? Is our party gonna break in two? Are we gonna have, is it gonna be, you hear talk about that in Washington, but it's mainly from the, from the conservatives on Fox News who would like to believe that the Democrats are in bad, as bad shape as the Republicans. Uh, but I can tell you as an insider, it's not. Democrats are having, and this gets to your question, Democrats are having a very healthy debate as we do every 20 years. Are we gonna be a left party or a center left party? In the 1970s, we were a left party. Uh, Jimmy Carter took us toward the center. Bill Clinton took us further toward the center. Barack Obama largely kept us in the center, but moved us one or two paces to the left. That debate continues, but it is not a fractious debate. It is not a debate that has people questioning the future of my party, the Democratic Party. I think, in fact, it's a healthy debate, and it will be played out over the next two years as we pick our presidential candidate. Uh, our presidential races begin with the midterms, unofficially. At this moment, there's always way too many candidates. Okay, eight years ago, there were so many Republicans running against Barack Obama, they couldn't fit them all on one stage. Remember that? In 1988, uh, against when George H.W. Bush was running, they called the Democrats who ran against him the seven dwarves. <laughs> there were so many and they were so small. Well. That's always the way it looks two years out. At this point in, in uh, 1992, we were all pretty, in 1990, we were all pretty sure that Mario Cuomo was gonna be the front runner and Bill Clinton appeared out of nowhere. Uh, 
1996, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, in, in 2006, uh, we had barely even heard of Barack Obama. Uh, so you start with a large field, and then it begins to winnow, and it begins to winnow quickly. This year, we have a particularly large field because people look at Donald Trump and say, well, my God, if he can be president, I can be president. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I've, had, I've had my own successful TV show, says, says Oprah Winfrey. I, I can run against him. Uh, Mike Bloomberg says, I'm a, I'm a billionaire from New York. I can run for president. Why not me? Um, so it's going to be unusually large and unusually chaotic. Uh, but fear not, at least for those who lean my way. Uh, fear not. Uh, there are fantastic candidates. And the, the amazing thing is we have candidates who first entered political life 35 years ago and are still viable and remarkable leaders. People like Joe Biden, people like John Kerry, who, trust me, looks in the mirror and says, you know, I almost did it in 2004. Um, uh, and then you have younger, younger, more diverse crowd. It's going to be a very exciting two years, but not a bad one for Democrats. I think it's going to be a good and a positive and a healthy one. So you would like to see Joe Biden run? <laughs> Unsurprisingly. Well, uh, he knows my name. Uh, no, I, I, I think he, he would be, just to finish on Biden, because he's going to be on everybody's lips for a long time. Um, yes, he's older. But he's, he looks in the mirror and says, look, I'm only two years older than Donald Trump. And you know what? I can take that. And I just use a word you cannot use on television. Uh, but I can take him. And you know what? Democrats know that Joe Biden could take Donald Trump. When you ask Democrats across the line, um, who's your number one or number two choice? Biden is there on everybody's lips, number one or number two. Uh, he's got to deal with the age issue. Uh, he's got to find a way to tie himself to some younger people in the party. I have some ideas for him, and maybe I'll sit down with him and talk about that. <laughs> okay, let's make Joe Biden younger. I'm excited to see how you do that. <laughs> but, Peter, you wanted yeah, to I, add I mean, to this. Again, it's too early. And in the beginning, you have a lot of people who are, might be thinking aloud or to themselves, uh, you know, for themselves. Can I, you know, my, my personal career in two years, can I be a candidate? Would I see myself as a presidential candidate? Yes or no? And the, but then again, I mean, uh, some of the names you mentioned uh, in, in two years, they will also be two years older and they have already some kind of age. And I wonder if there's not, it should be possible to, a, to, 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 to the both, uh, both parties, like, like the Republicans as well as the Democrats, but, but stick more to the Democratic side now, to come up with really a, a name, uh, a, a person that is younger of age, but also has some political experience uh, and would not hurt to have a political experience also on an international scale. And, have, and that, that's my point with um, leadership skills. It needs to be a character. Look to Obama. I mean, he did not have so much political experience, but then again, he ha his rhetoric, he was a great speaker. Uh, you know, the, the, the spark was there. He, he inflamed the people, and he, he was a personality. And I don't see anybody right now. But this may change. It's two years to go. And one remark that I, I cannot spare you is it reminds me a little bit of the situation we have in the CDU right now. First, you, you know, we, we have, all, you know, every, a little bit different than the Democratic Party, but 
who can there be apart from uh, Angela Merkel? And a shock uh, if she resigns or is not running again for the chair uh, for the top position of the CDU. Oh my God, it's the end of the party. No, we have a panel of great candidates who are completely different and really uh, offer an alternative. And uh, so what I want to say is, I, I might not be surprised. I'm, I'm pretty sure there that there are people within the Democratic Party who have these characteristics that are just to claim. Yeah. Thanks. Nelson, thanks for putting this into perspective. And you're absolutely right, and that gives hope. Um, what I'm worried about that we, you know, looking at the results uh, of yesterday evening, what I'm really worried about is that we will have two years with an even more polarized uh, debate. And, and the question is, you know, what kind of candidates will this bring forward? And, you know, the call is out. We'll see in two years. Um. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't really, I don't want to make predictions, but um, I do think that Americans crave outsiders. I mean, we saw that with Barack Obama, Donald Trump. And I think there is, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, a streak of anti-elitism in the United States. And that's why I worry about all these senators that are running, because at the end of the day, I think they're going to just cancel each other out, similar to what happened with the Republican Party in um, 2016. And who is left standing? Donald Trump. I mean, and also, I think last night showed us that, yes, progressive politics work and going to the left work in certain areas, like in the district uh, where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes from, Joe Crowley's old district. It works in some areas, but it doesn't work, I don't think, for a presidential candidate. And naturally, because of Bernie Sanders and people like her and others that are now in office, the party will adopt certain progressive policies. But for the candidate, I think at the end of the day, I think there's this middle in America that would still be open for a candidate, even like Beto O'Rourke, or who is very progressive, but somehow managed to um, bridge both sides. But since... Um since you've been working with Congress and are following what's happening there. Uh, I thought it was uh, interesting what we heard in um, Nelson's talk in the beginning, that there's actually room for compromise on certain things because Trump has things to offer. So my question would be, will there be achievements for the American people, like an infrastructure reform, like paid family leave, whatever? Uh, and whose achievements will they be in the end? Will they be Trump's achievement or Nancy Pelosi's achievements? I mean, I think Nelson's absolutely right. The dirty little secret in Washington is that you know, staffers also, they talk to each other, Republicans and Democrats. And so they, there is the uh, potential for things to get done. And the Democrats have to be careful not to become the party of no, as the Republicans have often been casted as. So they're going to have to sort of be, uh, pick their battles. And infrastructure is a really great idea on something that could be um, uh, uh, fashioned out together. But also the dreamers, immigration reform, I think is sorely needed. So these are things that the Republicans are going to, or the Democrats are going to have a hard time um, to just sort of reject outright. They will have to come to the table and talk, but they have to stand by their principles and be authentic. And I think that that's the message they need to go for. Let's maybe come to the question, what does this all mean for us before we come uh, to you and your questions? Um, well, naturally, this is a question to you, Peter Baya. Uh, what does it mean for us? <laughs> if only I knew. But, uh, no, um, just kidding. Um, this is a question that I've been, you know, over the, over the past 
several weeks and months, I was, you know, studying and reading a lot of internal reports from the German embassy and they, you know, from, from others, you know, reading the newspapers. And at one point in time, is you know, trying to intellectually digest all the all the information that I gathered and put into my brain. That why at all are, am I interested? Why should I read this? And you know, the question behind is really was, what, what, was, what would any result of this midterm election of the United States of America, thousands of miles away, would mean for, to us? And, well, maybe 70%, maybe even more of this result is more domestically uh, oriented. But then again, especially with the majority uh, even, uh, you know, getting stronger on the Senate side, um, we will see probably um, a, well, first, first thing I think is a continuation of all the issues that we have on the transatlantic agenda. Uh, the Vienna nuclear deal, that is the JCPOA with Iran, uh, uh, tariffs, so this trade and uh, trade issues, um, Nord Stream 2, uh, NATO burden sharing to percent, and many other things we will see. Uh, I think first, a continuation. Having said that, I have to correct myself a little bit. I think we might, because of this not blue wave result, because of this even a little bit more Republican Senate, we might be even be seeing a more intensified tr Donald Trump, U.S. president, uh, on an international uh, 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 stage. And it's, what I want to say is it's not going to be easier in all these issues. So we, we should not live under the illusion on this side of the Atlantic that it's going to be more, more uh, that it's going to be easier. It's going to be probably even more difficult to find solutions. And the good thing is, what I'm, I have to be optimistic, and I'm, I am optimistic, uh, because on a, on, 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 a, on a working level, but also very high ranking, there's a lot of transatlantic work. There's a lot of transatlantic communication. And the, the, the paradox thing is in, in, uh, many, some of the very important issues that we're talking right now, we were not on the same side. As if you look to the goal that we want to achieve in Europe and in Germany, we are... We are more or less, uh, you know, 100% or between 90% and 100% on the same side. We want to achieve the same in Iran, JCPOA, in tr you know, doing away with trade borders across the Atlantic. So we, we really just agree, don't agree on the path toward how to reach this. And that is a big, big, big problem. And I don't see really a solution. So now it's the time to even more turn from our side to the West and intensify our communication lines. It's so important. One very last remark is it's stupid to turn away from the United States of America now in search of new value partners. Never can any of these, nor, not even taken together, substitute in any regard our, our ties that we have culturally and economically and also with regard to security issues that we have with the United States of America. So that you have... Um a lot of you, you often talk to foreign policymakers in Germany in your daily work. Um, I my impression was that they get got more pessimistic over the past months because they had the feeling that, well, the polarization was becoming more solid and there were, was less of an opening. Uh, also in the White House, with all the adults being gone, um, do you expect uh, this to infuse some new optimism into the system now that at least the House is blue? So I think, you know, P Peter's right. Uh, President Trump will definitely be emboldened and um, continue on his 
uh, with his style for making deals and which will be that he'll, you know, push the envelope as hard as he can. And that's not going to suit the Europeans well when it comes to um, trade. Mm. But, um, you know, when he first was elected, there was sort of this wait and see attitude. Let's try, let's accommodate. But, you know, we're definitely in Trump 2.0 territory. And what you see is what you get. And I think people here now know that. And they've tried to find other ways of communicating um, with subnational leaders. Uh, civil society links are strong. So there's still communication. And the transatlantic relationship, though seemingly very bleak, um, it will go on because, like you said, our values are the same and it has to go on because it's been such a force for stability in the world, but it won't be as easy as it was before. And I think that with the House now under democratic control, there will be more opportunities for um, collaboration, perhaps with the Russia investigation. Um, other, um, the Europe subcommittee will now be um, out of Dana Rohrabacher's hands. So, I mean, I, I think that there will be more room for cooperation and dialogue, but it's not going to be easy um, overall. Yes. Mark, what's your impression? Yeah, I, I, the general thing I would assume is that Donald Trump will become even more focused on what's happening domestically. And we've been talking about this, what happens if there's a shift or this, like, I mean, one question, just to follow up on what you just said, is in terms of investigations, to what extent will there be a temptation to, for Adam Schiff, for example, the Intelligence Committee, to push certain things that have not been pushed by the Republicans thus far? And the question I have is Donald Trump may indeed love that, and it may be a trap in some extent, that you make it even more polarized that they're fighting and they're fighting. But then where does Germany fit in or Europe? I mean, it's just going to be a a chess piece, perhaps, in terms of how things go. And I, I keep going back to the economy. If the economy weakens, there may be even more of a backlash, and it may be even a bipartisan backlash. And again, I think it's also one of the legacies of losing the so-called never-Trumpers, often were free traders. And looking forward, at least in the, in the medium term, it doesn't look good. So it could happen that we have like a two-year Kavanaugh hearing atmosphere with, uh, uh, with the Democrats pushing very hard and, and uh, Trump using it and, and succeeding on it. Would you say that? You just picked up a, a time where it's looked bad for Trump for about 30 minutes and then he somehow twisted it. And arguably, it made a difference in some of the key Senate races. So yes, I, I, I'm gonna. Uh, that's an excellent. I'm gonna steal that. Okay. I'm gonna Go steal ahead. that analysis. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I think that's quite accurate. All right, then let's maybe switch to your question. We have about half an hour to go. Um, please introduce yourselves. And I think it's a good tradition here to start with a student, but I think many of you are students here. Yes. Hello, I'm a student at Hurdy. <laughs> to start off with, I have a question for Mr. Cunningham regarding the voting groups uh, and the trends we see there. Uh, I just have the data here from CBS uh, for this election. It says there's 60% women voting for the Democrats, uh, voters under 30, 67%, 90% of blacks and 68% of Hispanics. All of these groups except women are growing very fast and there's only old white men left for Trump, <laughs> so to say. Uh, is this a trend that is going to affect the next presidential election, or can the Republicans slow down this trend and give Trump another four years, which is probably uh, anything that they can do before they have to change themselves? Yeah. Um, that, of course, touches on the essential, because demography is destiny. Uh, in a democracy, demography tells you who your voters are and who your citizens are. Um, I agree with everything you've just said, And I remember reading many, many, many analyses two years ago 
that guaranteed this is why Hillary Clinton would win and Donald Trump would not win because of the changing demographics and how it would go. And here we are, two years later, the demographics have continued their inexorable change, uh, and yet, and yet, and yet, the results are what they are. So uh, I do agree in the longer term uh, that the what you mentioned, African Americans, Hispanics, young people, they as they become more dominant in the political landscape, they will change the ultimate uh, results. But boy, it's happening pretty damn slowly. Yeah, if I can, if I uh, can add to that, I mean that was the big promise two years ago, and you know everything was set for Hillary, and then things turned out the way we all know uh, they turned out, and. Um, I mean, there is, you know, the the number of people who support, you know, the left part of the spectrum are damn high. The problem always is getting them to vote. Uh, and that's where, I mean, they participate in so many things. Unfortunately, they don't participate that well in elections. Um, first point. Second point um, is that... The, the, and that's something, a, a point I, I made early on, that uh, Trump and his team have just been so damn good in campaigning and just sort of, at least in the last presidential race, uh, were able to demobilize uh, so many people that would have turned out for the, for the Democrats. Next question. <laughs> and a good diplomat. Um, one of the things that struck me watching CNN until about two o'clock this morning was this incredible disjunct between the exit polls and the results. These, uh, this broad sweep of people who believed we need more women, more diversity, that uh, the, the Obamacare was the most important thing you would have expected quite a different result. Now, these were small numbers, and there has been increasingly uh, a problem with polling, and particularly exit polls. But uh, do these exit polls speak to the future, or were they simply people trying to tell the pollsters what they wanted to hear? Also, we haven't talked about the governor's races. Wants to take Go it. ahead, Peter. You, you know about actual elections, so let's turn it over to you. <laughs> I don't really know how to, uh, to answer this. Uh, I mean, uh, with regard to exit polls, I have my own experience. So, that, <laughs> so I shouldn't even comment on that, but it's, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, I don't know why, why people are you know, answering uh, when, they're, when, they, when, they, when they exit, exit the, uh, when they have casted their vote. I mean, there's there's also some, some, some always some uncertainty involved. But actually, I, I don't really I don't have an answer to this. Um, if there's this more under the impression of, you know, if they are asked, if they are exiting the 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 the, the, the room there and they have just casted the votes, 
if the, you know, what, what led them to their vote and everything, it might be true, might not be true. But uh, I don't know, I have not so much, so much experience, we have not so much experience here uh, with exit polls, which is something that's still quite new to our system here, so I don't know, so I pass it on to the American. I'm so, sorry, that's maybe really, um, I have no really answer to that. It's difficult really to have a sharp answer. But on the polling quickly, um, I think you're gonna find actually that despite the narrow results, and I'm pointing to the map, uh, to the uh, chart on the wall, despite the narrow uh, Democratic win in the House, you'll find that probably one million or more million more people voted for Democrats. Uh, their numbers in the House should be much more commanding than they are right now. But because of gerrymandering and because of the concentration of voters, uh, those that raw numbers don't translate into number of seats. And that may explain a bit of what you're getting at. Please go ahead, Mark. And I'd like to build on just what you said to talk about the governorships, which is what you mentioned, because that has something to do with redistricting, which will be coming along. Uh, it, it, on the one hand, the Democrats won, I think it's seven or so. They don't have the exact number up there in terms of how this run. The biggest one was Scott Walker losing in Wisconsin. Uh, that was one that I was watching, like 2.5 million votes cast at one point. Um, the difference was by 113 to, I think it was Ron Estes in terms of how this runs. And then Milwaukee at the very end came through and, and sort of delivered it. But if you see in the industrial Midwest, Michigan as well switched. Uh, inter Illinois switched, so there's some important states in the Midwest, but you know the old saying is the Democrats left some on the table, be it Iowa, be it also Ohio. Well, I, well, I was talking about Midwest, and then if we go south, it's still the south. I mean, I think that's kind of what I took from it in terms of how this runs, but there is this nice statistic that now a majority of Americans live under a Democratic governor, and that wasn't uh, necessarily the case before. I think the next question was up here, and then we'll go to the back of the room again. I'm Rolf Schnelle, former diplomat uh, and teaching American students at the Free University. Um, the, given the central role of the Senate for the long-term uh, development of the United uh, States, of, this, of society there, their influence on the justices, on the Supreme Court, and other directions, um, I find it uh, remarkable, and I know that uh, you do not question the Constitution, and I know the reasons why we have the rules for the Senate, but I checked again the ratio between Montana, two senators from Montana, and two senators from California. It's one million inhabitants in Montana, 40 million in uh, California. Uh, I think this, uh, I wonder what effect it will have in the long term if there's a retarding effect of the rural outlook on life and the challenges of uh, modern developments and the uh, situation that uh, our societies uh, have to compete in. Anybody like to comment on that, no. Nessa? Uh, that was the essential compromise that permitted in 1789 the American Constitution to come into effect was between the large states and the small states. Uh, that is our found, perhaps that's our founding sin, our foundational sin, but we can never walk that back. Uh, it is what it is. All right, there were a couple of questions over there. Yes, please, go ahead. Quick 
Hi, um, I'm a student of the Humboldt University and intern at the Körper Stiftung. Uh, I have a question regarding the international perspective on the results, because if you go to the m most important newspapers around the world, the focus is, of course, on the general results of the elections, but also on the winners of the elections, mostly about diversity. So they show, of course, Alexandria Ocampo uh, to be like one of the most important winners, this uh, Muslim uh, Senate, this other outed gay governor. Uh, but that's the international perspective. And my question is, is that also important nationally in the US American people? How do they react? Is that actually reproduce this debate uh, and the, like this new diverse politicians as a counteract to the aggressive rhetoric of Donald Trump administration towards minority and towards like, yeah, basically vulnerable communities? I mean, I think absolutely, no doubt about it, um, that this has been a response uh, to Donald Trump. But also, as Nelson mentioned, you know, demographics is destiny. I think it's John Judas maybe wrote one book a few years ago about this, about when the um, when the Democrats would automatically win because of demographic change in the United States. And it hasn't come out because, as Andrea mentioned, because a lot of people don't vote. It's a matter of turnout. But this is undoubtedly, um, I mean, I can talk about my own family. My cousin ran in Morris County, New Jersey. She was a grew up a Republican, but she figured she needs to do something. And minorities like Asian Americans who normally become doctors or lawyers realize, well, if we want to have a say in this country that we live in, we need to be politically active. And I think a lot of people thought and, that. And therefore disappoint time. your parents dramatically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, if I can just add uh, uh, to that question, sort of in political participation research, um, we often talk about sort of politicizing events. And for example, you know, when I was young, so the, the, the really the event that made me till this very day a very true political person was um, that, you know, I, I grew up in the southern part of the country, of, of Germany, was in the in the mid early 80s when the Pershing II rockets were stationed on the Swabian Alp. Uh, for me, that was a truly politicizing moment that made me a political person. And that refers what you uh, uh, said earlier uh, on, Suda, that, that perhaps, you know, the election of Donald Trump really made those uh, people that now got uh, elected um, to political people and 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 perhaps that that really is sort of is the interesting and and and, and good side of the uh, of the 2016 uh, election and I could maybe I'd like to add a question to that too from my side because um, I think what we've seen we've seen a large debate on voting rules in the United States um, beforehand this election. And do you see any chance that this will change now that uh, the Democrats hold the House in the next few years? Like just putting it on another day, um, enabling people to vote online, um, all these things that would do have a, a great effect on minority groups voting, for example. Um, no. <laughs> I, I mean, unfortunately, in our system, uh, almost all those rules are set by the states. Yeah. And the states, in part because of the state house dominance that Republicans have had in the states, and because it just takes a long time to implement voting changes. Uh, and we also have a terrible history in our country of, of creating rules that look objective, but are designed to keep certain people from voting. We used to have literacy tests in the South. Um, in many states right now, if you have a felony conviction, you cannot vote. Mm -hmm. Sort of sounds okay, fine. 
Do you know when those statutes were passed in most states? In the years right after our Civil War, when African Americans suddenly were given the vote? Guess what? Oh, you know, felons, let's take the vote away from them. And anybody who thinks that was a coincidence. So I, I, I fear we have, uh, we'll continue to have retrograde policies on this, but it requires absolute persistence and focus. One thing I could add is um, there could all, I mean, maybe I'm being too idealistic, but the campaign that Beto O'Rourke ran, he didn't take any PAC money or money from corporate. So there could be sort of just like a self-check process that takes place because the Democrats have said that they also want to look at ethics now that they're, uh, they have control of the House. So I don't know. Maybe there is a way that, um, I mean, money in politics goes hand in hand in the United States, but there could be some reform there or just candidates that disavow taking money from um, soft money from PACs. All right, more questions uh, to you, please. Hi, I'm Arielle. I'm from Maine, actually, and I'm a Hardy alum. Um, I was just wondering one kind of personal question for my state, but uh, we just instituted ranked vote um, on the ballot, and it is awesome. Um, I'm curious what you think it could, what role you think it could play? Could it expand to other states? Right now, actually, we're still counting the votes for Congress. Uh, hopefully, our Bruce Poliquin Republican candidate will, this will actually affect that. Um, but I'm curious what you think, because for me, I really see it as a solution potentially for polarization or gerrymandering issues. Um, do you think that it could catch on, or what effect do you think it could have? It's a fascinating experiment, and Maine leads the nation on this. I'll be fascinated to see how it actually plays out. And I'll just add, I guess, more of a political scientist, so just perspective in terms of how this works. I like the idea very much, uh, sort of alternative vote is, is how we see this in the European case. I will just say that sometimes one can get too clever by half, if you know that phrase. That is in California, where I am from. Uh, the idea of, of, in terms of open primaries, and you have both candidates, you know, sort of the top two vote winners end up in the next round. The hope was that this would bring candidates to the center. But what often happens is you then end up just with two candidates from the same party running in, uh, in the general election. And uh, you had other places in the House where you had several candidates running. And I can tell you, sitting here in Berlin, trying to figure out which of the six different Democrats on my ballot were the ones I should be voting for. And I had to mail in my ballot early enough to get in, but I don't even know which one's ahead because there haven't been polls. I can't coordinate on how to do this. Uh, well, I'm getting at is, it's sometimes these reforms sound really great when people like me and academics say, hey, let's do this sort of reform, but in practice it changes. So I only say that to say, I'm very curious what happens in Maine. I hope it all goes well, but I, from a professional perspective, I'd like to see more. Mark, could you add or could you explain what this means or what the, what the reform means? Because I think not everybody is familiar with the system. The, the idea is, and I, you may want to correct me, but my understanding of it is if no candidate gets 50% and there were three candidates who ran, it's like an alternative vote where the candidate who finishes third, you transfer their sort of second preferences to another candidate. So you see this, I think, in Ireland is a case where you see this sort of system. In terms of this run, Australia also has it in the upper house, but 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 that is and and in in Maine there were in terms of those candidates, the candidate who finished third was more left leaning, and so the expectation is that there would be a transfer of votes to the Democrat, and that will put the Democrat over the top, 
even though the Democrat didn't win it's, on the first it, round. It's just, I mean, this is different, but for, anyway, it can help it. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the system that we have that, you know, the, the one who, who, who um, the, the party under the candidate who won the last elections uh, in, a, uh, in the general elections, for example, is always uh, listed as as a number one on the on, on the ballot uh, sheet. So this is different from that, but this yeah. sometimes you know. So I, I, for, for for three times in a row, I got position one, even Very the well. Good. Yeah, this is what Scott just mentioning this. But it, it reminds me a little bit of this. You you, you know you can, you can't think you, you, one might think why don't put it in an alphabetical order or something. But it's it's, it's uh, different bio, different. Bio, bio. <laughs> <laughs> so, probably no change there. <laughs> always number one. All right, I think there were more questions over there. Yes. Hi, my name is Catherine Prentice, and I'm a student at American University, but I'm from New Hampshire, which is kind of a weird thing right now because we kept our Republican governor, and our entire delegation is rather diverse and all Democrat. And so right now, our state's really kind of up in the air and not sure what we want. We're 94% white, so that also says we don't have a lot in the way of uh, people of color and diversity. And so I'm wondering what, like in instances like this, what that has to do for our communities that are diverse and are they gonna be safe in our communities? So who wants to take that? Anybody from, are you from New Hampshire? Uh, <laughs> I, I lived in Boston, which is not a, not a recommendation if you're from New Hampshire. They have, a, they have a nickname for those who live in Massachusetts, which is a very pejorative nickname, which I could not use here in front of a podium, but you know what I'm thinking of, don't you? Yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I know and love New Hampshire uh, and have spent a lot of time there over the years. Um, I, I think one of the, to tie your question in more to the broader political issue, New Hampshire remains the seat of our first primary uh, our first political primary for presidents. And the only people who vote before New Hampshire are in Iowa, where we have caucuses, party caucuses, uh, in which people express their preferences. Iowa and New Hampshire are perhaps the two whitest, least diverse states in the country. Uh, really, they come down to it. Uh, we have to begin asking ourselves, as we pick our presidents, are these the right places to begin selecting presidents? Because on either side, certain voices are not going to be heard. The next states are South Carolina and Nevada. Those are more diverse states. But gee, by that point, a lot of times the choices have been greatly limited. Um, it, we have to address this. And I think there was another question somewhere. I have seen you uh, at this end. And then we'll go to the other side of the room. There wasn't? All right, then let's take this one. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Sibbe von der Dunheuser. Uh, I'm also a student here at Hertie. And actually, I want to follow up on a question that's been asked in the beginning. Because I constantly hear that the biggest issue moving toward 2020 is voter turnout and is moving these diverse communities. And then I hear names as Joe Biden, John Kerry. And I wonder, should the debate within the Democratic Party be only about whether it's leftist or central leftist? Or is there also a need for a debate on how to embody um, this new policy? And I actually wonder whether this party dares to put forward a candidate without political experience to embody these new political ideas. And I wonder 
whether that's a feasible option moving to 2020. Um, let me say this. I think voters in America, Democrats going to 2020, are going to be relentlessly pragmatic. They don't want to give away their vote for an ideal or for uh, a gauzy vision. They want to beat Donald Trump. And they're going to be extraordinarily pragmatic in, extraordinarily pragmatic in how they vote. They're not going to go for... I think they're going to be looking somebody in the eye and say, do you have what it takes to beat this man? If not, we love you. Please come back in four years. But for the moment, we all have a mission. Are there more questions? Yes, please. Another one in the back. Yeah, thanks very much. My name is Thorsten Seving. I'm from Perspective Daily and online medium here in Germany. Um, my, my question, first of all, thanks for providing a wealth of information that's um, not really uh, that much on the forefront of the, of the German audience. So it's really, thank you very much. Um, my, my question would be if um, uh, you were talking a lot about the trans transactional uh, leadership uh, of, of Donald Trump and um, uh, obviously, uh, all, all the people here in the room know that uh, there is an alternative concept to that, which we call the transformational leadership, and I haven't heard anything on that here. Um, is that something that, uh, and that maybe ties into the diverse community as well, and to the to the younger people um, that are probably more uh, au fait with that type of uh, leadership or um, open to it. Um, is that something that, that rings a bell with, um, for, the, for the 2020 election? Transformational leadership? Um, I, I, I will take your question. I may not understand exactly the term, but let me, let me put it in the framework that I understand. Donald Trump is transforming the Republican Party. And one reason why he was able to win two years ago is he brought out voters who everyone thought of as Democrats, and he brought them over to his side. Repub my Republican friends in Washington who are conservatives, believe in conservative principles, they're looking at this new party that Trump is assembling, which doesn't care about fiscal deficits, which is protectionist, which is quite interventionist in the markets when he, when he wishes to intervene. Uh, when farmers became concerned about soybeans and tariffs, he said, fine, here's $15 billion. It's a slush fund. We're going to use it to uh, just a classic intervention in the market. My conservative friends are deeply uncomfortable by all this, and yet they think maybe he's the future of the Republican Party and that he's leading the Republicans in this direction. He is transforming the Republican Party. I think what remains to be seen is what is the second half of that? This was raised before. Do these suburban Republican women, we used to call them security moms, after September 11th, they were the women who were, they were, they had their children, they were concerned about their safety, terrorism, uh, worried them a great deal, they supported George W. Bush. Well, these security moms, now because of Donald Trump's transformation of the Republican Party and gender issues, will they become Democrats? Will Democrats be welcoming to these people? Uh, will CEOs who are deeply concerned about protectionism, tariffs, trade, supply chains. Is there room for them in another party other than the Republicans? I don't know. But that <coughs> my point is there is <coughs> clearly transformation going on. 
And I think Donald Trump can take credit for refashioning the Republicans, at least for now. Who knows how long it will last? All right, if we don't have more questions, let's maybe start with or finish with the last round. Uh, and I'd like to hear your projections for 2020. I know neither professors nor policymakers like this, but <laughs> maybe if, if you don't want to make a clear projection, you can say, are you more optimistic or more pessimistic for 2020 as of this morning? Yeah, yes, you're, since, you're, since you're sitting right next to me, you go first. <laughs> well, I, optimistic or pessimistic implies a certain party. I, I think since we've been talking a lot about the Democrats, I think we know it's going to be Donald Trump on the Republican side. I should say as well, I think it's also something that came out of this. I don't see uh, a Republican really challenging him in the primaries. It was unlikely anyway, but it, I think this has just simply killed that. So who's going to run against Donald Trump? I mean, now, I, I'm going to change your question a little bit, but others may not want to do this. I mean, I, I do wonder if it's going to be one of the, 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 the Kerry Biden, but I also wonder, I think there's a maybe an unknown that is there. I'm thinking like an A.B. Uh, Kobachar from Minnesota, who had a terrific night last night, uh, seems to be very pragmatic. And I wonder, too, if there's going to be somebody who's going to turn down the volume instead of turn up the volume and be a kind of an alternative. And somebody like that could could be a dark horse that nobody knows about. So I'll, I'll, I'll mention her. So I'm going to say I'm optimistic because of uh, political engagement, what I started off with. I think people have the bug, and um, hopefully that will carry on and continue into 2020 because, um, you know, disenchantment in politics is not good. It kind of also perhaps led to, what, 2016. Um, in terms of predictions, I, I'm, and I'll go out on a limb and say, I think the Democrats need... Um, a white man. I know I shouldn't say that, but I do think that might be the way to go. And if Nelson's right and they're pragmatic, maybe they'll do that. And also, perhaps a Southern white man would be great, too. Maybe that's the winning coalition. Um, I can mention one name. I don't think he'll run, but someone like Doug Jones. I mean, do you think he has a shot, Nelson? We're definitely going to do crystal ball after this, <laughs> after this session. But, I, um, you know, there are some names out there that um, that are not, you know, not the, the senators that everybody ticks off, but um, there are people out there that could come in. Or Hickenlooper from Colorado, he's not Southern, but somebody like that. Optimistic or pessimistic, you know, depends on your perspective. I think, uh, you know, if politics start with observing the reality, and as it looks now, Donald Trump's going to be uh, the next presidential candidate uh, of the Republican Party, and I think his uh, prospects of winning are not bad might be even uh, uh, better than before, uh, especially given the, um, the effects in the economy that I, th that I think will be there in two years' time from everything that's being done and decided now, especially tax reforms and also USMCA, the successor to NAFTA and some other things, like it or not, I think he has good chances to, to be, uh, be reelected for me, and I have to bring this into the discussion or this final remark uh, at, the, at the end of this panel. Uh, international perspective from us, optimistic or pessimistic, ne neither one of these uh, realistic. What I said earlier, uh, we have, you know, the, the problems will not go away. It's going to be a tough time. Uh, we should not turn away. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be probably more difficult uh, than before. Yeah, I'll, I'll use Mark's phrase. I think that we will have two years of the volume being turned up. We will have, we will have more polarized debates. Um, 
and you know after what nelson pointed uh, towards on putting things into perspective i mean uh, two years into the presidential camp presidential race of 2008 no one knew barack obama uh, and there are a couple of other uh, examples so I'm, I'm i'm quite optimistic uh, that the democrats out of their rich pool of of uh, potential candidates will uh, pick the right uh, pragmatic uh, candidate to to campaign against trump this won't be an easy race uh, and I hope, Mark, that after the, the, the 2020 campaign, we will, t we will be able to turn down the volume uh, again. Unfortunately, it will be, you know, volume up for the next two, two uh, years. I, I think the most, perhaps the most consequential name for the 2020 elections is one that I don't think has been mentioned yet here, Robert Mueller. Uh, his investigation continues. He's, of course, been quiet because of the midterm elections. I've followed his work very closely. Uh, I'm not putting him up for president, by the way. He's a Republican anyway. But, <laughs> but his, the impact of his work, I think, could be in, in, incredibly consequential to where we find ourselves in 2020. And I would not take your eye off that ball. Thank you all very much. Thank you all for your questions. You. Uh, this was great analysis and have a good rest of the day. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.